Welcome everybody to Learn With Lowell. Today we're joined with Kurt Euler. He's a marketer, operator, and speaker. He has built and run businesses from startup to over 500 million annually in, re in revenue. He's also been a part of teams that have IPO'd and has been a part of a number of acquisitions. Uh, today we're probably gonna uh, dive into a number of different areas such as uh, servant leadership, marketing, all those things that he gets up to. Uh, but Kurt, I just wanna welcome you onto the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Sweet, so I was reading through your stuff and you know sometimes people have like these humble brags like uh things they do where like you just say them you know casually and it's like you don't realize how cool it is because you lived it but i was reading through it and and I, on your profile you talked about how you were once asked by the white house to participate in and choose attendees for a round table to help the president with the economy so i don't know how many people can say something like that so i just wanted to start there and just hear and understand a little bit more of that story yeah uh it's been asked a couple of times so uh President Trump, love him or hate him when he was in mm -hmm. office, but um, uh, Made in America, the companies that use that label, a uh, country of origin label, uh, they were starting to do a bunch of work there around the economy uh, for a variety of reasons. And so they asked like 10 people in the industry, hey, we want to have this roundtable, bring some business uh, leaders together. Who a quick note, Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today. Who should we? Who should be at the table? And everybody either said the Made in America movement that I was the chairman of at the time, or me specifically. And so I got the next call. And having friends, I don't know if you have friends like this. I have friends that would make that a joke. And so I didn't believe it was real. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm like, and I have friends that will go all the way in. So I, I said, I need a phone number I can verify publicly. And how do I get back to you? And so. Mm -hmm. Sure, they gave me that. I called back. I was like, okay, I got transferred. I'm like, I now believe this is a real phone conversation. What can I help with? Because not too often do you get, uh, we have a call that uh, we would like you to help the president for. So uh, mm -hmm. being able to go spend uh, spend a good amount of one-on-one -on -one time. Uh, actually, I guess you're never truly alone with the president, um, but then a big public thing at the White House and be able to bring on about 50 or 60% of the business leaders to that meeting as well. Was there was there anyone at that meeting that either you recommended or that you thought should be there that were were not like that would have represented more of a pie of in America? There's there's one group that I always feel gets left out, just as like my feeling, is the ranchers where they're they're getting undercut by like Argentinian beef import that gets brought into America, then it gets butchered, then rendered out. And so they're always getting undercut, but like no one ever talks about the ranchers and how they're losing money and, and all these other things. But that's that's always a group. I don't know if they were there or not. They they were not there. I've actually spoken at RCAP. Mm. RCAP is the uh, is the that group for the independent ranchers. So that's not owned by kind of the big packaging mm. in the U.S. And so I've spoken at uh, been a keynote at some of their uh, talks. And so they weren't there partially because they're kind of, they're excluded from that country of origin labeling um, for a variety mm. of reasons for it. Um, I'd love to have more conversations with them kind of publicly. Our, they're a great organization for a variety of reasons you kind of mentioned. Um, there was nobody, we had a good representation of different companies there, some big, some small. Um, the I will say the very first company, I won't name who it was, that um that I uh that that I that came to my mind that I wanted to bring up didn't meet the qualifications of the White House at the time. So their only their their conditions were really it was up to me to recommend, I did not choose, uh, but to recommend people. And so they had to be companies that only build made in America products. And then the second thing, is, uh, they, the only other requirement was they didn't want anybody uh, that was highly political on any ends of the spectrum, which was actually very weird for me to hear, given the White House, what I would, I think a lot of people think at the time, and they were very adamant. They're like, we, we don't want anybody extreme on any of these sides. And the person that first came to mind was a CEO and founder um, that would have uh, definitely fallen into the never Trump hater campaign. And mm -hmm. um, 
to the point that I even asked and they're like, if you can't keep that underneath, then, then we would not want that person to come. And I was like, ah, oh. but uh, I, I like what that company was trying to do more uh, so much so. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit surprised over the last like 10, 15 years. And maybe I'm just young and I didn't notice this growing up or any other period of time, but companies nowadays, it's like they have to have like a banner of what they stand for. And it's like, why can't a business just be a business that does good by its employees and its customers? You know, like I, I've found a number of startups and it's like one of those, there was always a conversation about like, what do we stand for outside of just the doing a good job? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that does go back to like Simon Sinek's book, Start With The Why, where mm -hmm. um, I, I think like it's it's both wonderful and, and horrible marketing as well. Like he talks a lot about like Apple at the time, but when Apple was the challenger brand and it wasn't like half of people had an iPhone or like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm on a Mac right now. You mentioned you have a Mac as one of yours. Like when you're the challenger brand, I like you're trying uh, like that's very different than when you have a 40% or 60% market share. And I, I think people don't often kind of identify that way. I mean, when you're 0.1% of a market, you're still trying to find your tribe and you're trying to get endearing to them. And so mm. whether it's politics or social or even camping, like you could go in none of those areas and just make camping equipment. Well, there's people that want to go glamping and they want to stay in a yurt that's been there full, you know, for the last 20 years and just resided. And then there's people like my brother used to be that wants to take a very lightweight backpack and go out for three days, you know, in, in the wilderness. Those are two very different types of campers to talk to. And like, if I was a challenger brand, I want to go very heavy into one of those two categories, perhaps. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. The It's a differentiating factor that sets people apart. I, I guess yeah. it's it's odd to hear, hear like a lot of these bigger companies do it, but I guess they're just trying to be hip and have people believe in them and whatnot. Amazon's kind of a weird one where it's like they say good things, but then they treat their employees poorly. I, I like I like consistency, I suppose, in those types of things. I mean, I do think I, I, I kind of I believe there's always hidden assumptions and things that yeah. I don't know. And so. Like I hear different things on the on the um, Amazon side, but like I have a sister that works there, and mm. outside of some shifting schedules because she's in the support side, like it's a wonderful company for so many reasons. Now mm. there's ways that I might not run part of it, um, but there are things I hear that are very counter to other pieces, and so I try very hard to to not to go with what I know is fact versus what I that's hear. fair. Um, yeah. But I think that's a big deal though for companies and just individuals. Like it matters to be like. Is, is what I'm hearing a biased opinion, whatever it's at, or like, what do I see in actions? Like how often do you, do you talk to a friend that's, they've gone to work for a company that said all the right things about what mm -hmm. culture was yeah. And then when you get in there, that's completely different. And I mean, mm -hmm. like, I mean, I, I try like from a culture perspective, working with companies like, let's establish what your culture is, but things that people could validate by it, by action, not what, mm -hmm. not what I say, not what you say. And that's a mind shift for a lot of people because we're so used to like somebody basically putting on the resume, I work well with people. Like you work well with people, that's going to be seen in your superhero stories you tell. If a company says that they that you know they're they're high growth, like like is that really there? Like I want to have something that says we believe in healthy confrontation mm -hmm. because that's going to be a conversation that you're going to want have some very different interviewing conversation, but also then anybody on my team can hold me accountable to if it doesn't feel healthy later on. Cause there's no way to avoid confrontation, but yeah. like, like some people actually, I've had people say, I don't want to take the interview because you guys believe in confrontation. Well, that tells me a little bit about the person yeah. too. when even engage in that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think confrontation is healthy, like you're saying, and it's necessary. And it's, I think sometimes people 
blow it out of proportion. If I think we should go left and you think we should go right, there's an inherent confrontation. Now, how are we going to talk about the, the the right way to go forward? We, you know, we talk about the vision, then we decide which one has the best merits to get us there, etc. Like that's, a, that's still a confrontation, but it's a there's like, are we nice? Are we respectful to each other in our opinions? Like that type of stuff's really important. It, I, 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 I hear you as well, like that. I can't imagine an environment that doesn't have confrontation. I, that seems kind of odd. Yeah, but I don't think it, you can. I don't think you can avoid confrontation if there's yeah. people involved. I mean, yeah. in the example you gave about left versus right, if we're going hiking and we're at that at that Y, well, we can have the confrontation now, or we can have the confrontation a mile down the down the trail or ten miles down the trail, and like there's that's going to be unhealthy confrontation at that point. If I continue to think that, well, you had us go left. And we're getting farther and farther away. Well, that's going to be build the conversation. So when it comes mm-hmm. up, it's going to be much more difficult versus yeah. having that up front. The same thing happens, you know, with me and my wife at home, with uh, with kids, with work topics. I mean, you're not, we, none of us have like full insight in what the future, but I'd rather have that discussion up front so that it mm-hmm. doesn't, it does like healthy confrontation isn't really challenging. It's a conversation as it should be a lot of ways. Yeah, I was talking to an in-house uh, a friend of mine who's an in-house recruiter for a, a large corporation, and I, I was curious what are the things they look for, and, and they were like, "Well, we want this ability." So I asked them, "Do you have this ability?" And they say yes, and then I sent them on to the next person. I was like, "So if, if I'm a if I'm a liar, all I have to do is right. say yes." And I get in there, it's like like have a conversation. I feel like you're. I was we had a conversation about it, but like I, I feel like if it is just yes, no, yes, no, yes, no to these five criterion, like, I don't really feel like you're getting anything from that person that separates them. And at the same time, uh, like you want them to understand about your company as well. Like if you're just like there to check boxes, like they could have just done a scantron or like a, a and a type thing and, and moved about their day. But uh, but since then, I've talked to a number of recruiters and a lot of them are that way. They're just like they they like pattern match and they just look for like uh, like true false statements. Like is this there? Is it not? They don't look for those stories to really um, show. Can they work with like like anyway, like you can say like you said earlier like I work well with people, but it's like all right, uh, let's 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 dive into like a tangential story that would reveal that to me. I, I always like to find ways to ask a question that isn't obvious what I'm trying to get out of it, so that uh, so we can just have a conversation about it. But I can learn everything I want to learn at the same time, and then open up the conversation for a back and forth. The most fun interviews I've ever had for hiring for my own companies are been ones where they ask quite. It's more of like a dialogue like this versus right. someone who's just kind of like. But at the same time, I think a lot of places condition people to just sit there and uh, say the right things, and you know, jump through these hoops, etc. But the play, there are people that were just very much themselves and showed me who they were. And while it wasn't like they didn't have the technical skills or whatever, they weren't a good fit. I still like forward them on to someone who would like them. Cause like, oh, this is, I, I have a sense of who you are. And I interview a thousand people, maybe only like a hundred or so has that type of uh, strength of, of character to be just open about what they're looking for and who they are, et cetera. So I always try to like help people around uh, getting where they want to go, but it is, it is rare. And anyone anyway, listen in, I'm sure like you have, you know, horror stories of people just being like, well, do you have this ability? Or they, they, or like even a company that has all these values, but then, but that doesn't back them up. I think a lot of times when I'm building something, I don't think, I don't think a value is something you state. Like I feel like you value what you tolerate. So there are a lot of places that say I care about A, B, and C, but then if you just work with them a little bit, it's like, well, what type of behavior do they really tolerate? That's what they really value. Right. Like if you're an outside performer and you, you know, etc. That type of thing. Yeah, well, and a lot of times I think what we're looking, well, at least I'm looking for in people yeah. from the team and from individuals, I mean, there's going to be a, there's going to be a conflict between some of the things like three of the big areas that I tend to hire for from a culture perspective is we mentioned healthy conflict, 
I also want a bias towards action. And mm. so the other thing I want is strong opinions held loosely, which does overlap with the healthy conflict because you're yeah. open. But it also means you're going to show up if you have a problem on your team or something in your job, you're going to sh- show up and say, here's the issue. And I want you to have thought through enough to have a very strong opinion about, to your example, we're going left. And we may have a healthy conflict, talk or talk ourselves into we're going to go right. Um, but but those three things, like that's also a conversation a lot of times when you get with people about, okay, these three things could be competing for what we're both going to see. And so to your point, if I just always yield to, well, we're going to be, we're going to keep the peace rather than be peacekeepers or you know, peacemakers. That's very different. A peacekeeper means there's no conflict. Well, no, I want a healthy conflict so that, hey, we can have super strong opinions and let people struggle through. Like most people will be able to discuss that. Now, not mm-hmm. always can they discuss it from a work perspective, but sometimes somebody will bring up an issue like at home. Like I had somebody, um, I mentioned healthy conflict and his response was, oh, you mean pre-fighting. And I went, what do you mean? So him and his wife had used the term, be mm. like, hey, how do we want to raise our son? How do, what do we want to do mm. budgeting wise? And so they're like, if we pre-fight, it's a discussion so that now when we've been saving money for it, do we buy a new car or do we go on vacation or do we pay off part of the mortgage? We've had the discussion five years before we got that money in the bank. And so for him, it'll be a fight later. But if we talk about it and agree now, then the decision's made before there's any any conflict that kind of comes in. And I was like, yes, that's not, I would not call it pre-fighting for some reasons, but like that's a great way to bring it up um, mm-hmm. and to think about it. Yeah, it, the that structure it can be seen in so many other different avenues as well. You know, preventative medicine. If you're, I, I, I was in and out of the ICU and ER at one point in my life. And there's, there's a, if you're in that scenario, they're catching you right before the, you hit the ground. Mm-hmm. But if there's preventive medicine, it's like, oh, you're starting to stumble. They can come in and help you out, do the things that are right. And it's a similar situation. Like you're, you're pre-fighting any potential illnesses or larger things going on right there. And it, it's, it is interesting because I get to talk to so many different people to see like there, there are, there seems to be like themes that just work in so many different arenas. And, yeah. uh, but I, I know a lot of my, I know a lot of people who they'll say, I don't have that skill. I can't translate it over here. And it's like, well, what's the structure of that skill? How's what's, how do you use it? Cause like the, the person in their, their, their personal life, oh, pre-fighting, you can use that in business. You can use it in many different places, probably not in the surgery room without some like advanced training, but like 90% of the time you'll be able to uh, apply a skill differently, which is really interesting. But I think that falls within your category of servant leadership. This, this like, you know, managing up or, or looking for opportunities to help other people. But one question I have for you, I was reading, uh, Walter Isaacson's biography on Steve Jobs, I think it was in there, or I was reading this elsewhere, but that I think Donald Trump was also a person who does this, where they, they like things to be consolidated to like a one pager. So like the people below the, when they, they talk or like in a meeting, they have everything consolidated to like the smallest bit as possible. Like I know Steve Jobs didn't like slideshows, for instance, he just wanted people to like speak from the heart or be like really consolidated. And I like that idea of people coming, they do their work and they consolidate it to a level where you can just have like the high level. And I trust that they've done the work so I can like, give me good opinions or like everyone else in the team could like, Hey, I, I did research this component. Here's my thoughts on it. Here, this component, there's my thoughts on it. We can kind of, uh, a la carte, the solution together. What do you, what do you think about, what does that look like with the servant leadership? How do you see that working or is it, how do you see about communicating in, in group uh, settings like that? Yeah. Great question. I mean, I, I think it, it starts with actually work early on is that mm. everybody in the organization needs to not only understand, which most companies don't make pe- don't have frontline people, especially do this, but understand what the outcomes the company is trying to accomplish and why. Um, mm. 
I was talking with uh, somebody earlier today who's an executive coach with mid-sized companies, like 10 million to about 50 million a year in revenue. And he was like, it is so hard for him to go in and teach like financial literacy so that like everybody in the organization, sometimes even the CEO understands what like, like net profit looks like before taxes. Because if you ask, mm-hmm. you ask frontline people, how much does this $10 million company make? And they think like 50%. They're like, no, it makes 7% before taxes. So it's like 3% by the end of the day or something. And like being able to like make sure individual people realize here's the outcomes we're trying to accomplish. And here's how you as an individual are trying to accomplish that. That has to take place before I think somebody can really consolidate and come forward with, hey, here's decision. Here's the decision. Here's that where we're looking to invest because they, you have to, you have to give that explanation and bring people along so that they're empowered enough to actually know, Hey, if we go left versus right, here's how that's going to impact my team or me or the company reaching our goals in the long term. And so many companies, they don't do that. They just assume, well, I mentioned that at some conference and it didn't take place. Like, no, like you have to mention, you have to bring your team on board about what those outcomes are so frequently that if you're married, your spouse should be annoyed with hearing it from you because Mm -hmm. that means that she's overheard conversations one-on-one sometimes where, or vice versa, where like I've been continuing to bring it up to my teams over the last five years, some cases, like at that point, I'm starting to break through with the mass of the team when they're on the larger companies that I work at. Um, And then, then the consolidation is great because without that, I need more details a lot of times to know why do mm-hmm. you believe that this is the right choice? Because I don't actually know that that individual knows where I'm trying to take the company. No, too often, I think too often leaders, this is where you mentioned about servant leadership. I think too often leaders, they may not mean to be, but they're wanting to micromanage. And so yeah. I don't let you into my entire vision about where we're going because I want to be in control. And so like I'm never the smartest person in the room. I, I like, and I, I think that our milieu of different ideas, especially from different backgrounds, is always going to come to a better result. But that means I have to let you know where we're trying to go. And to some degree, I think I think everybody, including the person that, that's answering a phone in a front desk for places that's like, there are places that you need to have brick and mortars for, they need to understand like what the company's doing and why we're trying to get somewhere. And if not, like. I'm never going to be able to get to the point where somebody could come to me with a real the kind of Steve Jobs point. Hey, here's the one page of what I think we should do. Mm. Yeah, that that's interesting. The so the the CEO of Google does the same thing. Every meeting he goes to, he'll say, "This is our vision for our company. This is how this meeting is going to fit into it. Let's let's dive into it." I think that's really interesting. The I, I've seen people where you could say it. Like you could say at the beginning, so I work in, I do a lot of software engineering and uh, there will be meetings where we'll say, hey, here's a vision. And by the next sprint, like the next, you know, period of time where we're doing a, a development of something, the people forget what the vision is because they're just like so in the weeds on what they're doing. Right. And so restating it, it's like so key. And there was a, a friend of mine who's working on in a biotechnology company to develop a pharmaceutical and uh, they were trying to get. They were trying to empower their team to do be- to do more, um, uh-huh. to do their best, essentially. And I was like, well, how, do they understand the vision? Like, exactly the questions you're asking, do they understand the vision? Like, did you, how certain are you that they understand? I was like, well, I think they do. It's like, okay, say what the vision is, and then ask everyone how their work fits into the vision. If, if they can answer that, like, help them see where it fits in. And they started doing that. And, like, they said, like, they production exploded after that. And they did, like, six months in a couple of weeks. I ask, as a leader, I always ask myself, if I was being led in this way, 
would I like that? Do I want someone to come in and say, lol, I want you to do this, and this is exactly how I want you to do it. Now, I would, I would love a conversation where it's like, this is what we're trying to do. This is why we're trying to do it. Go. This is kind of your area that you're in. Go have fun with it and come back with a plan, and then like let's critique it together as a team. Like, that's more fun for me. I think that's also how Jekyll Willick describes it in Extreme Ownership. Um, where they like they'll have a plan, but they never really tell the subordinates how to do the plan. They like they're they they do their half to and then they manage up to him and then they kind of work on it together. It's like I, like I said, there's kind of like these themes and how to do things well, and it just there is a muscle memory to it because it it feels antithetical to how people think you should lead. Where it's like I'm in the front, I, I, everyone's got to listen to me and all these different things. It's like I, I don't know, I, I think you should listen more than you speak when it comes to leadership. Yeah, I um I kind of stumbled into also like knowing that uh, I, I stumbled into servant leadership, but I really stumbled into it in a way that so I ended up with we spoke a little bit kind of before we got started, but about uh, I ended up with a mentoring relationship with Judson mm-hmm. Green, who was the president of Disney Entertainment or Disney theme parks and the CFO of Disney as a whole. And when he came to our company, and this was a little say little company, we were doing about eighty five million dollars a year in revenue. Uh, by the time I left, we were doing one point four four billion. When he came in to become our CEO, he thought it was kind of his retirement gig, but he still treated it like it was the big boy Disney at the time. And um, he came in and I was I was a new out of school, just finished my master's. And he came to me and he had approached nine other people that were all kind of at my level in the organization around the world. And what he came to me was to say, I don't remember the exact wording, but was he knew that at most companies and he experienced it at Disney, every time there's a report out that goes up, there's unintentional lying. Sometimes there's intentional lying, but usually people are biased wanting to show the good and not the bad and the problems. And what he he realized was, and his way, his way of solution, uh, his solution was, he came to me and, and a couple of others and he said, one, I will come to you and ask you questions about what's going on in the organization. And I want complete honesty. Not I don't want your opinion. Sometimes, if I do, I'll ask you for your opinion. I want to know what you see factually is happening. And two, if you ever tell anybody about this relationship, we're done. <laughs> well, I knew who he was. And so all I knew was that's really cool. It was very, it was like within two years that it was only me and one other person did we still have that relationship because people would tell others about the relationship or he would realize, well, now you're starting to give your bias in there and he couldn't self-correct. And so that mm. developed into something else later. But it was amazing as I look back and I was somebody with 20 plus years of experience and in hyper growth companies where he was correcting for that, like he didn't, tr- he did, he just knew a lot of t- the bigger organizations get as the CEO and at mid-level managers, you don't always know what's actually going on. I approach that differently now from servant leadership by saying, I want to provide that out. Here's the outcomes we're trying to accomplish. I want the communication channels so that we're having the conversations much more regularly. I shouldn't have to self-correct for implied lying that's going to take place when you manage up. No, I, I want to know what's actually going on. The frontline person who's like working, you know, working um, at a fast food, uh, you know, taking orders, they're going to see things that regional managers would never know is, ho- is holding back the business. So how do you get that information? That's what mm-hmm. that's what Wendy's doesn't do. That's what Burger King doesn't do. You go to a Chick-fil-A, you go into Freddy's Burgers, which uh, has been growing pretty, pretty. Wow. They push through so many more people than other organizations because they take a different approach. Mm-hmm. I just watched this movie on Disney Channel about the Flaming Hot Cheeto and how it was a, a guy who was a janitor who thought this whole thing up 
and then uh, called the CEO who made a tape about, hey, act like a CEO and you know have some ideas. And ever in, in between him and the CEO, everyone at a certain point just started yelling, like, who's this guy? You know, he started yelling at like implied lying and all these different things. And right. uh, and the CEO had to like come in and, and like kind of correct it just with his behavior. And so it's there. It's interesting to see. The, what change you can have when people are treated like people versus just cogs in a machine. I think that's the cool thing about all this technology we have. Where people can be brought up to a level where they can really bring out the best in them, like bring out the best in themselves and apply it to something. I think, I, I don't know about the majority of people, but I know like for the people I, I talk with and myself, if I go through a day and I, and I feel like I didn't do anything, it's like, man, that's a shitty day. Like I want to do right. something like I'll, I'll even be like, did I do anything today? And I'll take five minutes. I'll find like, what's a concrete constructive thing I could do that feel good about today. And I, I, I do something about it. And so there's a lot of places that I feel like waste people's time with like, look busy or, 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 you know, all these like meaningless things versus this is our goal. You know what it is, you know, think about like the flaming hot Cheeto idea or the purple yeah. elephant idea, or like all these different, uh, Seth Godin, uh, type concepts that, um, I was, I've been reading about, um, it, I always tell people, like, what's the most selfish thing you can do? Treat people well. That's it. Yeah. Like, if you're like the most evil person, just treat people well, and then, like it'll you'll benefit you even more. It's like I just, and then they just look at me like that doesn't make sense. I don't. <laughs> but uh, just try. Well, it. And, tr and, tr and trust people. I mean, trust yeah. people when they when their actions show who they really are. Yeah. Trust that as well. I mean, give them grace. I mean, I screw up all the time, but also when somebody repeatedly shows you who they are, believe that. But like. Like I believe my job, my I like the two things. If I can summarize any job that I have, yeah. my job is one um, to help the company achieve its goals, and kind of with that, but I, you might make it second to make my boss per, uh, successful in accomplishing the company's goals. Well, that when you believe that, there's no excuse for you having a bad boss. You can go get another job. I mean, after six months, you're still at the same company. You still think you have a crappy boss. Well, that's now your fault because your job, if you could have gone and got another job, your job is to make him or her successful as long mm -hmm. as you're there. And if they're not the person you want to work for, then you can go somewhere else. But when I'm here, my job is to make my boss successful. And so that means that he needs to, he or she needs to know what I'm doing. I need to, uh, you know, some cases that also means this is something I struggle with all the time. I need my team to know what I'm spending my time on. Maybe not on a every single hour, every day basis, but my team needs to know, teams need to know what I'm doing so that they can decide the same way leveling up. Hey, Scott Trowbridge on my team, his job is to make me successful accomplishing my outcomes for the company. So he, to do that, sometimes he says he has to step up and go, I see you spending time on this. I can do that. Well, if I don't provide that level of transparency, no, they never have the ability to do that. And then they also can't grow as well because I'm hindering their growth a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like there's a you know a, a accountability systems and how you think the I think some of the most detrimental things you can do is any I think everyone has experienced this. There's like when you're a group assignment either at work at school and there's like one person who doesn't do any work. Man, does that like that like really wears you down? And that, uh, just having a level playing field for everyone to be appreciated for their actions and be accountable for them, even on even on the, the leadership side, on the, the management side or whatever, I think that, that that says with action, like you've been saying, what can't be said in words. I think a lot of times people feel, I've worked with people that, like it took six months to just watch them to see how they only say the nice things. Cause you can't, you don't really see what they're doing sometimes. And then it's like, all right, well, of course, correct. And then, you know, move forward. But the the times where you can show with action, the things that you believe, um, that, that it's such a world of difference. Yeah, well, and that's, I mean, you're kind of, you're making me think about like, there's this huge pull from a lot of uh, a lot of companies now to make people that 
had been had shifted to work from home or work from anywhere, forcing them back into the office. Mm-hmm. And there's underlying, like, I mean, it's just a false belief in most of them. They think that because people are in the office that they're productive. I mean, they're, I, I don't like monitoring software for, 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 for on people's laptops, but when you look at the studies from those companies or you do a short-term thing in that, like you look and see everybody that shows up to an IBM office, you go look where they're productive, where they're actually spending time. And like the amount of time on eBay and Facebook and other places, I mean, it's, it's like, it's appalling for people usually. I mean, I've done that checking on myself as well, where I'll install all pieces of software for myself. And I'm like, oh, I'm not as productive as I thought. Well, people think that just because there's a bunch of people on these cubes at Home Depot that that they're working. Well, no, like for me, I'm using Trello, Asana, Shortcut with our engineering mm-hmm. teams. So whether or not you and I are in the same office or whether or not we're remote around the world, I get to see what you're doing. You get to see what I'm doing. And then to your point, like you don't have that, hey, it's a project and, and this person, these five people I've just sat off by the side. You get to see whether they're contributing or not. Now, Mm. you have to read the data well. I mean, like on the engineering side, when somebody's releasing code, one pull request is not the same as another pull request, especially when you have pair programming. But but at the end of the day, if you can't, if you don't have transparency, like transparency brings accountability by itself. And Mm -hmm. if either because you're able to help coach and manage people to produce more, or people will self-select out. If it's continually showing in Trello that you're just knocking out cards and I'm not, I'm not going to stay at that organization. Like people will self-select out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, just uh, circling back on the the mentorship you received, uh, I think a lot of times people talk about how important that is to receive mentorship, to find mentors. In hindsight, what do you think it was about you that singled you out for his mentorship? It seems like in the story, it was your integrity that kept you there. But just having the door being opened, what do you think allowed him to find you? It was a little random. I mean, we were mm. about a thousand person company around the world at that time. Um, I, I might have been a little less random than others, but um, not. I don't think it was me from a choice perspective. I happened to be in a role reporting oh. to a woman who reported to Saladin Khan, who was our chief strategy officer. And so I was like the only kind of brand new fr- uh, frontline uh, strategist under Saladin Khan at that time. So I was kind of the random of one of one. Um, others were truly random within the organization because they could have had 50 people that were chosen and he chose one for whatever reason. Um, it was the integrity and or just following rules that kept me there. Um, longer term, what I heard from him as we actually moved from that into a true mentoring relationship is uh, he told me it was the humbleness of heart. I was open to hearing where I was wrong and I would ask questions about why he made a decision. Um, I didn't always agree with his decisions, but I would ask questions about like, I like I strongly disagree with what you just told that person on the phone. Why did you make that decision? And he was like, the why, the why question and being open to being wrong, he goes, that's why, that's why he chose to step into a mentoring relationship with me. And that continued for years after he ended up leaving and retiring. Mm-hmm. Is there is there something you gained from the mentorship that you've applied to uh, how you mentor other people? Yeah, it was this. I had it um, articulated by uh, somebody later, but it was do for one what you wish you could do for many. He could not have had that level of relationship with. At, by the time he retired, we probably had five or six thousand people. He could not have had that relationship with everybody, but he had it with me at the company and with a couple of others outside. Yeah, I think that's why people like and discuss culture so much because. 
culture reinforces that 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 microcosm of that relationship with everyone else. Like if you have when people hear about businesses like oh the culture all these things it's because it that type of mentorship if you have a good culture would be happening all around the business with different right. people in different ways and i think that's that's probably why people are so focused on it um and why it's so hard it's so hard to uh get people to be in a, a state where they can be vulnerable and help each other in that way yeah and it's and it, it can look very different ways i mean i've been a mentor um out you know to both in a business environment, a spiritual environment, and personal environment outside of like people that work for me. But it is so much easier a lot of times, I think, when you do work together and things. And so I got it from uh from, from Judson, but I got it from somebody else. I, I didn't realize the the some of the benefits with Judson until uh later, where I had this gentleman named uh Reggie Bradford, where Reggie hired me to kind of be him. Like any conversation he couldn't take as a CEO, he was like, I can duplicate myself and hand that off to you with direction a lot of times. And like, I would, I would, he, Reggie would let me work in his office and hear the conversation with his wife where they were discussing, Hey, could he work late or night? Uh, not um, what decisions with the kids sometimes. And so I had gotten that from Judson as well. Mentoring is great. Coaching is great. But what you can do when you have that, especially formalized in a work environment is just allow the other person to be the mentee, to be around hearing hmm. things is so, like one, it, it allows conversations to take place, but that's teaches so much more, I think, because they're able to see your actions than anything that you can say. And so, um, I, I mean, I've did this, I've done the same things. Sometimes you can do it for non-employees where, you know, I, I'd help somebody raise a bunch of money for their startup and the CEO just, he was having a hard time talking to investors. So, I just finagled technology so he could listen in on my conversations with investors that were my investors at the time because there was advice I was giving him and he said some of it just wasn't crystallizing. And then he listened into five or six mm. conversations and two board meetings. And he said things started to crystallize for him at that point. And I just, I had to conference him in before I kind of got on the call as well. Some cases he'd literally pull up like on a Zoom call out of camera as well. But that that requires a transparency and people willing to be vulnerable. I mean, Reggie Bradford, like the fact that like, I mean, I saw him get off meetings sometimes where he'd struggle with things where he cried like, oh my gosh, like no, the person he was talking to business-wise didn't do that, personal-wise didn't do that, but I got to see it behind the scenes. That taught me that was a real conversation that was hard for him. Um yeah. When we made a decision, we had a, we we made the we made the decision to go right when we should have gone left. To your example earlier, and uh, we we knew the right decision was to build a bunch of branch offices, and we realized ten miles down the road that was the wrong decision. We had to fire like thirty people. Reggie mm -hmm. cried. He didn't cry to the board, but he cried about it. Like wow, like that's that's how you teach people. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you think about doing that? And I think you gave some examples, maybe conference them in. Well, pair programming. How do you do that with the the move to remote and hybrid uh, work styles? Um, the same. I mean, you can do the same way a lot of times. And so, if you were doing a Zoom call, you might conference a person in on your phone and let them listen in. Um, I mean, you have to be very aware of confidentiality. You can't do that with all meetings. If 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 you're in the big chair, um, you get to make a, make make some different decisions. Uh, but you have to be cognizant of that. But there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, I mean, I've had, I'm, I'm in a mentoring relationship right now where I'm the mentee and, uh, they brought me up in Google meet while they've had their zoom call with their board. 
And mm. so I got to still listen in on it. So depending on your machine, you might have to have two microphones for that because sometimes you can only have one audio source unless you're using uh, something like OSB. But but either way, there's a lot of ways to do that remote as well. Mm. What um are the skills in keeping investor happy long-term similar to the skills that we've been talking about so far? Like investors and the board? Like I don't think a lot of people get many interactions for the listeners listening in what it's like to deal with investors or what it's like to deal with a, a board of directors. I think they know essentially, you know, uh, you know, boss or, or people working collaboratively. So what, what's the difference in applying this methodology to investors and the board? It can be the same. I think it's um, it's a lot easier. A lot of times it's, it's very much the same and you do the same thing in, in actions. If you've done the work prior to raising money or as part of raising money to decide to um, to decide on both the outcomes the company is trying to achieve and the cultural values that you would see in actions. Now, when the board and the investors are on board with those two things, it's actually really easy to have those conversations and even presenting up, uh, you know, and the interaction um, with with the board works very easily at that point. Um, it's the problem I think a lot of companies run into is you raise money and then you decide, hey, it's one thing to change the outcomes, but it's another thing when you say, okay, I've been very hierarchical, I've hired very uh, authoritative leaders, and now I wanna go move to a servant leadership, a high achieving servant leadership style. Well, you probably hired board a board that was very much uh, decision makers as well. Um, they liked the people that you were hiring and now you might need to clear the deck and that's going to be difficult decisions. So that's going to, if you were to make that shift, you might not be able to tell your board you're making that shift until you slowly started to change some of the people on the team. So, mm -hmm. um, but I think if you've, if you've taken that high achieving servant uh, leadership approach and you're saying, here's where we're trying to accomplish. We'd like to get there as soon as possible. Here's the actions that I expect to see in people that will help us get there. Well, then when you talk about like transparency, well, you might share more information with the board, but it's never going to be different than what you'd share in all hands and say, hey, look, the company only makes 7% you know, on every dollar that's sold and then taxes come off as well. Like it's still the same information. It's just a different level of detail. Yeah. And um, just on if anyone's listening, like, oh, 7%, that has to be too little. Walmart makes like three pennies of the, to the dollar. Oh, it's a giant organization. I think it's like, it was four pennies. It's down to three. I mean, I think they're still profitable when it goes down to two or something. Like, like you can actually go down to zero or even negative and still be like, somehow the accountants make it work. I, I don't understand that level of it. But uh, it's it's like large companies that make a lot of money. It's like they, it's, it, they make... Even with it sounds small, but if you add, add it times like you know a thousand million plus interactions, like it adds up pretty quick. But yeah. I just like that, that, that. These are real numbers. <laughs> just well, and that's one of the reasons that I I love software, especially software mm. service where it's reoccurring revenue, and you mm. might actually be able to get to an eighty-five or ninety percent margin at the end of the day. Um, yeah. Now, when you're considering all the investment and other things, but on a dollar sold today. I might be able to make 92% at the end of the day. It's less when I consider the investment over time, but like you, you're never going to get that happen in, you know, in a retail environment, uh, landscaping business, uh, which, you know, was actually one of my first companies that built and sold. Like you're never going to get to those type of margins as, as you go through things. You mentioned made in America, like you're never going to get a, a denim manufacturing company that's making jeans. They're, they're never going to see a 10% margin in their life. Mm. Do you think, um, and that's mainly the the operational costs, probably. 
A lot of it's operational costs. Some of it's also like with manufacturing, it's competition from other parts of the mm -hmm. world where um, like one of the main reasons I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of uh, Made in America uh, label and Made in Canada and Made in Europe uh, as examples are because of some of the regulatory issues, as opposed to I've worked in China uh, extensively. I've helped build a company there. And it's like, if if you're building a denim manufacturing company in the US, we care about the environment. And so there's regulations behind that. Um, it, it, like, despite what people may say in the political spectrum, I've never met a ma somebody in American manufacturing that was like, I want to pollute the river next to my factory. But, but, but in some parts of the country, well, you might be able to get a t-shirt made for $2 and forgetting whether I, not, I, I do care about slave labor and child labor, just, and those things are important, but both including those, you have the chemical issue, you have pollution issues where like they're not in, like in the U S we're considering these costs over time. Mm -hmm. And so and like, Hey, I want the kids to develop well, so I'm not going to employ them in a factory eight years old. And so that doesn't happen in other countries. And so they make a t-shirt for $2 that might take $7 to make here just for the t-shirt by itself. Well, that's, that affects some of those margins as well, because as a consumer, maybe some consumers are conscious of that and others are just looking for, well, I want a cheap t-shirt. Yeah. I think that's, there's a, a element of ownership that I think people buying things need to take when they talk about these issues because businesses respond to where you vote with your dollar. And so if you're saying you want the cheapest thing and the cheapest thing happens to be uh, supply chain uh, problematic, to say the least, like cobalt or whatever that the people are starting to learn more and more about, like these giant like holes, pits in the ground. But um, like fundamentally, like you're the one who's buying, like not you, but like people listening, like right. we're buying the products that are the ones that you don't like. Um, so, and I think that if people hit a little bit more, that's why I, I like labeling, like really, really strong labeling that you can like trust it all the way down the silo so that uh, I know like, hey, I'm willing to spend like 20, 30% more. It does seem like that's a trend that's going on. At one point in time, I think like up to like the 90s to, to, to the early 2000s, people were more like how cheap couldn't be. And it seems that now it's more like the, the quality's coming back a little bit more. I think maybe you have a better sense of how that is, but from con from consumer standpoint, like my generation seems to care a little bit more about where things come from, like we were talking about earlier and the quality of them and like also like who's touching them. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's been probably 10 years at this point, I wrote an article that was published in um, gosh, uh, um, USA News. And so it was like, the, it was all the reasons. It was all. It was like a, a list of reasons um, to buy made in America. Um, you could apply for almost any any Western uh, country, and and none of them were patriotic. Which is where I think a lot of people go. Oh, you want to buy made in America just because you want to? You know, you care about the nation. Like, well, no. It was I cared about slave slave and child labor. I cared about chemicals, um, quality. I care about different things, and so you can get wonderful quality in non-American countries but they're not all the same from an electronic perspective. Like there are reasons that certain countries make um, semiconductors and most of the world does not because there's a tolerance that one, they're skilled in it. Uh, they're, they're highly skilled in the knowledge base, but there's also the quality that's taken place in time. The same thing for cars or refrigerators or t-shirts. And so quality is a big piece of that. And so I think for part of it is like people now, you're right, are wanting, a lot of people, not everyone are wanting to be, they, they're considering those things. Some cases, it's just price. Um, when I was with a big mapping company, I do remember at Walmart having a discussion. Garmin was a huge uh, multi-hundred multi -hundred million dollar customer of ours. And so at the time, a Garmin navigation device that sat on your mm -hmm. car was well, like had one. $600 or $700. 
And Walmart was trying to get to a price that was like unfathomable to anybody in the industry. And so we're we're just the data provider. We provided all the maps for all of those. And I'm in the meeting where the, the electronic companies are talking about to meet those prices, these things are going to break. And Walmart's decision or like their ethos was, yes, but if we can hit this price point, people will have no problem just rebuying one every two years. That mm-hmm. was not, Garmin was trying to make something that was rock solid, that was not going to break, that would still work 15 years later. And Walmart, I don't remember what the year was, but it was like, look, if this lasts for two years at this price, consumers are going to make that great decision and they'll just, they'll take the cheaper one. That's actually wasn't, that wasn't a cheapskate move. That was a knowing the customer move. Like mm. you, buy a, you buy a $700 device over here. If you could hit say $200, you don't mind rebuying it every couple of years. Well, yeah. I hadn't personally thought of it that way, but I clearly the electronics manufacturers in the room uh, where Walmart, the, the the big papa that's being able to say, here's the price point we're trying to hit. You all make make the decisions on how we reach there or how we reach that. Uh, it was just, it wasn't what I thought about. And now I think mm. about that when I go buy a t-shirt. There's cases where on our mountain property, I just need a t-shirt to go out and work. I'll get goodwill for that. I'll pay 50 cents for a shirt. There's also my jeans where I might get poison ivy or I might get stung through something. I want Carhartts that like no no needle from a bee is going to get through. And I'm mm-hmm. still going to be wearing the jeans in 15 years. Like that's my personal choice. Yeah. But, um, so when you talk about servant leadership versus any other model, when you go into a business and you're, you're I think it's like really easy to dichotomize it. Like what, what was a business capable of doing before you bring in the system versus post the system? But maybe it's, it's better just like build it from a new but what if i'm like an evil utilitarian person why would i why would i go with that model over a different model like what would be the change in outcomes that you've seen growth and and revenues like um mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of books on serving leadership i won't give them to most people to read because they approach them from it's a moral play a moral thing to do it's a faith-based place to do i'm a person of faith i i do believe those things but but like there's not a, hey, you want to make money? Go do servant leadership. And so there's only two books that even kind of touch on that. One is called Love Works. And Cheryl Backelder did a, re- a book recently called Dare to Serve. And Cheryl basically says, hey, I stepped in as CEO at uh, Louisiana's Popeye's Kitchen, and we were losing money and on the path to bankruptcy. And we became a wildly successful from a monetary perspective company because she pivoted the company to servant leadership. And so it's like, I look at this place where you mentioned muscle memory before building hyper growth companies. I'm on my second hyper growth company. A hyper growth company is how do you grow like 50 X hundred X, you know, in just a couple of years, like that's, that's a hyper growth. And we took that company from 85 million a year in revenue to 1.44 billion in 10 years. That's hyper growth. And so the only way that that's really possible is with servant leadership. And for me, that ends up being, you can look at an organization and say, who's making the decisions? Is it the boss that's making the decision, the higher ups that people have to keep coming back? Or are most of the decisions intentionally being made further down in the organization? And very often the new ideas are coming from frontline people. Like that's the real flip of things where the people that are trying to solve the day-to-day problems with customers and for and for services, are they, do, are they the one, do they feel authority to make decisions or to raise problems that could be more efficient? I think the when the Soviet Union fell, the there was like a the military people were like meeting and actually seeing how they both ran the different systems. And the Soviets were like, How can how can you Americans get so much done without people watching each other? Like they were they like so apparently in the Soviet Union, 
like there would be like uh someone from the plug bureau like the it's like the communist party function thing there'd be like a guy for the officer the guy for the 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 sergeant the guy like there would like be people assigned just to watch people so like you for it was like double the size for everything to get anything done where in america it's like all right guys we're gonna go do this and ladies we're gonna go do this and then like 10 people just go off and do it like how do you how do you guys get stuff done like there's just such a dichotomy and it does feel kind of like that to an extreme and what you're talking about when people are able to uh know the vision operationalize the details and then see what's happening on the front line and make decisions without you know uh, a stalin-esque person sitting by their side like force them go 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 faster you know uh it seems like things go uh faster on their own um which which is just an interesting uh, uh historical aside when when you talk about hyper growth are is there is there certain foundations that you need to have to start uh, achieving it is it like can you start hyper growthing when you're at like a quarter million dollars in sales or do you need like 10 million x amount of customers a certain base of people like what are the criterion of foundations to allow you to do hyper growth uh, great question. Um, I don't know if there's a, a pure dollar figure. Um, yeah. There, I mean, I would say it's, it's usually easier. I mean, so somebody's starting the concept earlier, but um, you have to have uh, you have to have your product market fit solved. Whether you're a real estate company with real estate agents or you're building software or data, um, you have to know the problem that's being uh, you're trying to accomplish and have a solution that your customers go. That's the solution. Um, you can't like. All, every startup is trying to be hyper growth, but they don't have product market fit. Most companies that have raised, you know, a series A, sometimes a series B, they don't have true product product market fit yet. They'll claim they do a lot of time, but they don't. Um, and so you, you have to have that product market fit down. Um, bigger is going to be better. It's going to be hard for a quarter million dollar company. And some of that is just from a, a, a diversification perspective. I think what most companies forget, what most leaders forget is the profit first mentality. Like at the end of the day, uh, revenues solve, revenues are blood flow and profits are what allow you to continue investing. And so if, if you don't have revenues growing, well, it's hard for you to, it's hard for you to really have growing levels of profit then. And so you have to have profit to be able to say, look, let's keep solving this. And so foundationally, like I always want to keep, I always want to, wherever I can get a wonderful 10x ROI, hey, if we have this and we put more money into it, um, solve it. But the more capital you have, you can spin off part of the company to almost try to put the rest of it out of business. We did that at this company called Navtech, where I started 26 internal companies. And part of it was we had an R&D shop and part of their job was to just advance the current technology. And then there was our inventions. And our inventions were, how do we put everything else out of business, mm. <laughs> including the R&D efforts? And so that was like a side gig kind of we had internal like you have to have enough revenue to be able to say, hey, let's take hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and just go focus on pure moonshots that are going to just go gangbusters if they work. How do you know when you have true market fit? I, I hear this a lot as well. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's being able to repeat the problems to your customer that your that, that your product or service solves, tell them what your product does. And, uh, or how it solves that problem. And what you hear back from the customer is that's right. They don't, they don't bicker on price and they go that you tell them the problems and they go, that's right. That's, that's what my life is like. And then I go, 
well, here's here's what we've solved, you know, and again, it could be in real estate and here's how we work with you to help buy and sell property or it could mean here's our SaaS solution. And people, when you tell them what your product does, you tell them how you work with them and they go, that's what I'm looking for. Like that's a, that that's, it's almost not selling at that point. Cause to me, selling is selling is me trying to get you to go through the list of features and be like, well, there's a bunch of things. I'm just like those, but I'm in front of you um, or we're a little bit better. What I'm looking for in product market fit is here's what your life looks like. Here's what I solve. And they go, that's it. How can I give you a credit card? <laughs> yeah. There's a, I look for examples of, I, I think of it like unintentional product market fit, like things where when they're retooled work really, really well. And I was recently reading about how, uh, I think it's Home Depot. They had this sign that said, "We have." I forget the name of it, so this is not going to sound well. But the basic concept was, spray this on your your uh, spray this on anything. Come back in thirty minutes, you can wipe it off. It's it's like like scrubby bottle clean or whatever. And people would just line up. They would they would sell out by the gallon all the time. And uh, but apparently it was just bleach. But like it was just packaged in a way where people were like, "That's exactly the problem I had." Like that like that exactly solves the problem I have, which is like I don't want to like sit here and scrub. I don't want to spend like all this time like scrubbing something clean. If I could spray it, come back. That's such a, a nice conceptual idea. So they apparently it just sells like hotcakes all the time. And I look for examples like that where like it's just a sign and people just like sell it out. But it's like a it's the same product that doesn't sell well normally. It's like how yeah. how does that change? Like what 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 are people hearing and seeing that solves the problem for them that makes that work well. And so that's, that's one that has product market fit in terms of like, uh, uh, you know, fly off the shelves, people who just want to like, uh, relaxively, you know, spray some, have something clean and then they move on with their day. But, um, are there, are there other examples or other ways that other examples of, um, identifying product market fit in your other companies that you could talk about, unless it's like the exact same formula that you use that you just described. I always try to find like other ways to, to let the, like crystallize the ideas. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I mean, one, so I think it does for me, it, I mean, if you solve something and you make something technically better, if you and I yeah. could go to a lab and make a, make a CPU that was twice as fast as anything else, it sells no question. Mm -hmm. That's different than coming and finding a problem that somebody has and then uh, creating a solution for that. And so uh, one of the examples that I, not from one of my own companies, but I was a uh, coach at uh, Georgia Tech where we brought about 70 companies through this um, uh, deliberate innovation uh, program. And so one of the guest speakers that came in that was friends of the program was one of the in inventors that came up with a Swiffer. And so the problem that they were trying to come up with wasn't something that I ever would have gone for. I mean, anybody that's ever used like a Swiffer or one of the knockoffs, like you can always vacuum or mop a floor better than you can with a Swiffer. Their thing was they knew on that one specifically that said, look, people have like a very small amount of time, like two to four minutes where somebody's coming over and like that's their mm. level cleaning. And so what they were looking for was what could we build from a product perspective that would allow somebody to like go, Oh my gosh, my in-laws are coming over. Oh my gosh, my my boss is showing up or you know, friends are bringing Billy over that I could walk I could from that moment walk to the closet, do some mm. level of visible cleaning and put it back all within 4 minutes. And the Swiffer ended up being the results out of that. And I I think about that from a technology perspective where it's like, you know, I you step into things. I built one of the earlier influencer marketing platforms. Well, did it need to be the best influencer platform that ran the best, most productive campaigns? 
No, we actually started to build it to make the best campaigns out with influencers and other marketing partners. And people were only kind of like, okay. And so when, when we talked to companies and we said, like, you're paying us for this, but I see you're not using it. Like, you had no problem writing a very large check for this uh, for the, for the so- enterprise software we gave you, but you're not really using it, but you keep paying us. So thank you. Um, people had this desire. They said what they really wanted was they, as a marketer, the brands were always looking for, they wanted more. Hey, yeah, yeah, we have 200 influencers we work with. What I want is 500. What I want mm. is 1,000. Well, for me, the logical part said, yeah, but if you, you use our tool with the 200 people you have right now, like you could double revenue. What the customer told me was, yeah, but the problem that I actually want to solve is I want more influencers. So we built up part of the platform to basically go identify more influencers. And that's what people cared about. And mm. so I think too often uh, founders get in the position myself have where I try building something, I try solving the problem I want to solve rather than listening and say, oh, wait, what I want to solve, you don't actually care about or you only somewhat care about as opposed to what do you what do you actually care about? And when you start to unlock that, you then start to get into that hyper growth possibility that much more. Mm. That's interesting. And this is, you're pre-fighting all this before you, you know, file for LLC or C-Corp. You're talking to a number of customers just to uh, get a sense of this. Um, I'm just you can do it before, you can do it, you can do it during as well. So that, yeah, yeah. you know, the influencer platform, we had actually raised money on the, on the first bit that I talked about by me going, I had built a lot of software, but going to a handful of companies that we had worked with, with trying to find a problem and when I told them, I, I told the first com- uh, the first CEO of the company, I said, well, here's this platform we're building. I don't know exactly what the price is going to be. $5,000 for access to anything we build over the next six months. I promise I'll get you something within 30 days. And when he, without missing a beat, he said, well, c- can I give you my credit card? I knew at that moment that I should have put an extra zero on the end of the platform price. So in mm-hmm. conversation two, when we were going back, again, I didn't have software yet. Conversation mm-hmm. two, I did add a zero to the end of it. And we got pretty close to that at every negotiation. Well, I did that with three customers before we had software. We built, we raised a bunch of money. We built that platform. We had customers doing really well with it. It was only after that that we actually started to listen mm-hmm. to customers and they find out there was something that they were more excited about over, over here. Um, but that works, it works the same way. I think uh, I work a lot in real estate right now. I'm not a real estate agent. I tend to be an operator, a technologist. I make, I'm a scaler. I come in and I find processes and I make things work better. When I talk to the, the real estate agents that are making just great money, they, they, part of it, they talk through conversation. They're really skilled at walking through conversations with people, at least those that are buying homes. There's lots of types of properties where they're, they're having more of the discussions about what people want from an emotional perspective, what outcomes than just, oh, you want five baths or five bedrooms, three baths in this within this area. That's part of it, but they're they're uncovering what are people's desires and they're really good at navigating that part of the conversation. That's interesting, especially with uh the I think it went from like a buyer's market over last year or so to a I don't even know what the market is in terms of real estate. I just keep looking at it and like seeing the points go up and not understanding it too much. It What is the real estate market like? I guess in Georgia, where you're, f- you're from, if that's not a doxing information, but the is this looming recession affecting things in a, a really negative way in terms of real estate agents and people who are buying? Like what's I, I, like? 
I mean, I, I, I have no real personal opinion on that. I mean, oh, okay. opinion. Um, I'll tell you like, what I like, what I see uh, locally is mm-hmm. uh, like my neighbors across the street, like the number that they, they, they're under contract right now, what they, what they're under contract for is almost obscene compared to what a house just down the street sold for like a year and two years ago. Uh, so mm-hmm. Georgia people are moving here and, and prices are going up as at least feels like it. Um, I think at least my understanding is so much of the buyer's market versus seller's market, it is it's it comes down to inventory at the end of the day. I mean, you always have people that are um that they're are just having to buy and sell because of new jobs or they're moving for elder care or they're moving into elder care. And so they're having to sell a property, um, divorces and whatnot. And so there's a certain number of transactions that just always have to take place. And mm-hmm. then there's a lot of us that we just need to live somewhere and what new properties are being destroyed or built every year. And so a lot of it, th- that is just an inventory perspective as well. Um, I mean, whenever there's um, people are much more skilled at me. Whenever, when you ever have interest rates change drastically, that affects people's ability to buy and sell. But that's also why it's like I build technology. I happen to be able to do things like get companies to outrank Zillow and other people that are out there. And like that's my part of it. I would still like now having been in there. I hear about uh, people that were trying to, you know, they try to buy and sell properties by themselves to cut out a real estate agent or something. I'm like. I've seen and I know enough agents, productive agents, non-productive agents. I'm like, I would never purchase a property or sell a property without having a real estate agent because like, it's not just a negotiation. It's that not what's happening in the market. They're like, I just can't know that. I mean, I have a master's in financial engineering. I can take the most complex financial equations and code them out at an enterprise level, or I could when I graduated. Do I manage my own money for retirement? No, I have a gentleman with Ron Blue Trust that he manages our money because to do that well, you need to do that every day. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. The what? Yeah, I was reading as well that you, uh, you, I think it's um, EXP. What I forget which one is the one that you got to outrank higher than Zillow. I was just curious. Uh, what you did to do that because like, I usually I go into Zillow because it's fun to like look at see what everyone else is doing or how things are selling for and stuff because sometime in the next five years I'd like to get a place well we don't outrank Zillow for everything but I I, I do work uh, by day I work for eXp Realty one of the largest mm-hmm. real estate companies in the U.S. and definitely the world um, and so yeah it ranks for hundreds of thousands of keywords I mean there's like five million uh, buyer related terms across the U.S. and so it's different than if I'm trying to rank your personal website or my website like Hey, I have KurtEuler.com. I write a lot about servant leadership. How I, what I do there is very different than like for an EXP or a Home Depot or others where you're having to build technology. So it's called enterprise SEO. Some of it is similar to how we might try to rank your own sites, but there's always, there's a huge technology aspect. And it's very different because instead of trying to rank for dozens of keywords or maybe hundreds, we're trying to rank for millions of keywords. And so you just can't do that without technology coming into play. Um, and then where there are things like link building and content writing, the scale is just completely different than what I, I do for my personal site. Mm-hmm. Is uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT, any of that stuff coming in, the AI new tools coming in to make your job easier or more complex? Um it's some of it's easier. Um, I I mean, I'm a I mentioned I'm a scaler. I'm always looking for 
how I can do more, better, faster, but mm-hmm. the, the more and better has to go together. And so there's a huge number of people within marketers and people that think they're marketers, but aren't that are like, oh, now that you have chat GPT or Jasper AI, there's a whole bunch of those. And they're like, we can, we can fire our huge content team and we can just pump through a whole bunch of articles over here and spit things out. Well, on your on a personal site, if like you and I were trying to do an affiliate site, we might be able to do a quick rank, make a bunch of money, sell it off. But I would never do that with something like Home Depot, where you have this huge brand authority and you're trying to rank, like I said, for millions of visitors on a monthly basis for the next 20 years, because you might be able to fill Google for a little while. But like even there, Google stepped in and said, hey, we care about helpful content. If you use chat GPT to, to regurgitate what else is out there, that's not helpful to most people. There's some mm-hmm. level that it is, but when I have somebody who's very skilled from a writing perspective that knows the area and that knows how to use AI tools, that's where they can go faster. Some some industries and some types of content, maybe I maybe I can have an average writer go 30% faster than I could have two years ago. Some cases I can have them go 300% faster or more. Um, but I can't, I can't just take away the writers. And so in some ways it's making my life a little bit, it's making myself, making my ability to go faster because I know how to use it wisely. And there's a little bit of my, it's making my life a little bit easier because there are so many people that are doing it, um, poorly. They're trying to assist in the short term. There's a lot of crap content that's out there. And so in the medium and long term those of us that know how to use it well are going to win hands down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's an, an interesting factor to think about, uh, how to differentiate yourself, because it, 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 it's really, unless you really know what you're doing, all the, the all that kind of, all that content kind of feels the same. It's very like, unless you like, you really know what you're doing, and even then you can kind of tell when something's been written. Um, Sometimes I like to give it like this is my this is how I like to write. Can you like give me some suggestions on how to improve my writing? It's like it's definitely a tool to improve and accelerate what you're doing um, versus something to take over. And I think I think a lot of people are just letting it like take over, like you're saying, versus letting it letting you influence it. I think it's a very powerful tool. It still has hallucinations. It still gets things wrong, and so you have to kind of know. I think someone someone said I was reading somewhere on Twitter. Someone said that uh, using ChatGPT is like listening to Joe Rogan when it's a when it's a subject you don't know anything about. It's like oh this makes sense, but when it gets closer to a subject you do know about, it feels like oh this person's wrong or like they're idiots. Which I, I you know I think Joe Rogan knows some stuff too, but I think that's an interesting concept to think about in terms of you have to know what what you know to make it useful for yourself versus just yeah. trusting it one hundred percent. Yeah, I think I think that uh, like some some cases does it go completely sideways? Yes, um, but um, when you know the topic, so I mentioned like I run this huge proprietary technology stack for um, for actually home searches, like 1.8, 1.9 million homes in the U.S. One of the largest sites in the world uh, in the U.S. in terms of number of active listings. Like we were doing this huge effort to optimize our servers for things to load faster. Millions of pages on there, and so. My internal team, we worked through, here's all the big categories, what we were trying to do. I fed that into one of the AIs and basically, what have I missed? What else should I look more at? And so response, it filled in some gaps. It confirmed some of the things we were looking at. It it went completely sideways and gave bad suggestions on a couple of things, but also like it only knows as best as I can provide it. So I'm able to say, here's the different pieces of technology. I'm using Ruby. I'm using uh, Nginx. I'm using these things and feed that in. And like it, then I, I did the better thing. I asked it, what questions am I not considering? Yeah, that's fun. 
And that was great for coming back to my team and being like, oh, have we looked at these things? And some of them we had thought about and others we hadn't. Um, but it does, like I said, I, I think hands down on most topics, I mean, it'd be different. If we're writing brain surgery and heart surgery. I'm not sure I trust it for things, but on most topics, if you, once you become a kind of a, a, a chat wrangler, you're able to do it much better. And so um, I don't think content writers go away. I don't think SEO goes away. Um, but on the other side, like when you're able to use it well, it makes you use, it makes things a lot easier in many cases. So, I mean, mm -hmm. to some degree, a lot of people are using from an SEO perspective, they're using uh, chat GPT and others, no different than content spinners 10 years and 15 years ago, that was just taking a USA news article and rewriting it. That's largely what they're doing. And mm -hmm. it's about as valuable. Yeah. I haven't uh, used it for those purposes. So I'm glad that, uh, uh, I'm getting straight from a source who knows better not to just regurgitate. I use it as a tool. I've been thinking about doing more writing and letting it like, I have sometimes bad grammar, but I also, my wife is like an English nerd to to a level where like Shakespeare would probably be friends with her. And uh, so she helps me improve. Like When I first met her, my, it looked like, I, I looked my writing then and it looked like a Cro-Magnon trying to communicate with someone. And now it's much better. So ChatGPT is like accelerating that as well. Um, for for yeah. yourself, no, go ahead. I would say with, with that on the writing better, um, Grammarly has this built into, I use Grammarly mm. and a tool called Linguix, L-I-N-G-U-I-X. And um, Linguix is a little bit better. So when I write long form content, it'll underline my Google Docs or in uh, WordPress if it thinks it can rephrase something better. And you can, you can choose the options for everyone is like make it simpler or make it better and it'll rephrase things. And I don't always agree with it. Linguix is like, it's, it's making things better help some of those more complex topics I'm talking about, how it copies in its version versus like, it's, it's a little, little messed up sometimes with where it chooses to copy paste in its thing. But that's so helpful for being like, here's a complex topic. Hey, make this more simple. Or mm -hmm. you can also write out something and say, Hey, uh, you know, I, here's an email I'm trying to send out, uh, rewrite this in the tone of Orion Reynolds. Uh, oh, those are fun. And that's like, that that's something that like a skilled writer could do um but it'll do for you in like seven seconds yeah i uh i had it so i know a lot of people that like taylor swift and so i was having the the chat gpt rewrite all too well which if if you're a taylor swift fan having anyone touch that is like you know you're gonna get attacked and so i i had it tr translated as if it was like eminem or like a rapper doing it and uh it, it's, it's so much fun the the create its ability to do stuff like that the so the the show's name is learning with lowell and i always want to know what people are learning what they're working on personally to improve upon what they're in a state of feeling like oh i don't know this thing they're looking up at a mountain of of ignorance and they're gonna like chew on it until they get to the top what are you working on that you don't know like in that, that same that framework like that you're trying to improve upon yourself or is there an avenue of your business that you're like uh, i'm i'm learning so i can apply something in a different way like what what are you personally developing or professionally developing that you're working on right now um, I'm usually, that's a good question. I'm historically, I've been really good at processes and mm -hmm. anytime you come into a new company, uh, or a newer effort, and I'm in kind of that area now, um, I've, I found an area for, for trying to accomplish our goals that is working really well, but I don't, I have no idea. Like I haven't been able to stress test the system to breaking yet. And mm -hmm. so I'm at that place where, um, I know, I know the iterations, the muscle memory of going through to document processes, to have all the systems with, with, with Trello and other tools to be able to um, help the team guide through so that 
hey, somebody get hit by a bus, one, we can have somebody else step in. But um, I'm very much right now trying to focus on how I can make that happen faster without being heavy handed. Um, it's actually, it's having had that muscle memory, I can step in very much and be like, all right, let's talk through your day. Let's talk through what we're doing. And and just like document processes and some people do that better and find a way to get the program to go 50% faster. It's really hard though to, to teach that to other people. And so I have some incredible leaders right now uh, that I'm kind of trying to learn myself. The This happens with anything from target shooting, which I do to companies is you have to go slow to go fast. And it's a fine line between pushing them too hard versus letting them take the time that they need to not just follow directions, but take ownership and extreme accountability to improve that process themselves. And so that's kind of what I'm focused on right now. Um, some reason I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm probably stepping back into a uh, mentoring position with somebody um, who's been very successful compared to me, um, and where uh, we have some overlap friends and and we got connected. And so literally we kind of started that conversation where I'm deciding whether or not I would like her to kind of be my formal mentor to guide me through this part of my career. And mm -hmm. she doesn't at all do what I do right now work-wise, which is wonderful and horrible at the same time. And so, um, and so it's, it's nice to have to go and go through and be like, well, how does this benefit both of us? Yeah. The one thing that I, I've done is I, um, when I would bring, when I onboard people, I have like a system set up with like docs and whatnot. So, cause like usually I'm working on something that's kind of complicated and there's like multiple moving parts. And so like people like to know the whole piece, like to have the vision, but then it's also like, how quickly can you get people up to speed without, uh, kind of like blowing their mind. Cause sometimes it's like really complicated and like whatever. But so I have, um, a process where like people learn the important stuff to the point where they can start coding or working on a different part. And then like, as they go in, they do other things and right. I'm like deliberately being limited so I can like make the point I'm trying to make. But at the end of it, when they actually know not only their part, but how it fits into the whole system, they go through and they, and I, I say, delete anything that got in the way of you understanding it. Like, like go in and you can like delete lines. And like, there's this, there's this beautiful thing that Elon Musk uh, said where, where it's like, um, does it need to be there? Delete it and see if it does anything. And he like all of his, all the new designs coming from Tesla or SpaceX are so simple that like their new Raptor engines, all these things yeah. are so simple where even the Tesla vehicles, they're just going to be able to like, uh, uh, like make the whole chassis and stuff all together. Cause it's so many, uh, it's so simple. And so, um, if you can, if you can go through, it's like, did this line, was this line confusing? Delete it. How would you write it differently? And so everyone iteratively makes it better as they go through it. And so they're, they're a part of the process. And I like that because if you ask someone like six months later, what did you like about it? What did you dislike about it, et cetera? Um, I think they forget what it was like going through it when they had ignorant eyes. And at the same time, uh, if it's like too much work, it's, it's you know, it like it, it should, it should kind of flow a little bit naturally, but that's like something I've done where like, it's a, I make it a little part of the process. Yeah. I, I like that. I mean, I also, I find for myself, um, I, we're often very limited by what we think is our maximum capability. I have so many mm -hmm. times where I look back and I would have told you just like six weeks before something happened that I, I was working a hundred to 120% of my maximum. And then something changed. Sometimes I realize something, you delete part of a process and it still works. Some cases you just realize you're like, you realize a new way of doing things. And what I thought was a hundred to 120% was really like 30%. And I've stepped up that much in, 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 in productivity. That's kind of where I'm, that, that's, 
that's a hard thing to actually, I think, teach to others as well. And so like mm. I have uh, I have one, on one of my teams right now, the the output that they're, I can see in the system moving through right now is about 140 to 150% of where it was just two and a half weeks ago, where mm. they would have said, hey, we're, we're stress testing to kind of our max. Well, we've adjusted a couple of things. And for the most thing, the only thing that they've adjusted is their mentality, I think, of what's possible. They had just kind of self-regulated to, we're kind of capped out. But in the same amount of hours every day, we're now doing 140% or more than what we were doing on a weekly basis just a couple of weeks ago. That should be unfathomable to, to most people. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. There's part of me also in wanting to be like, we probably have three more of those iterations we can go. That's part of hypergrowth is always mm -hmm. saying, yeah, yeah, but how could we do this completely different? To your point, you bring up, what could we delete? What could we not do? What do we think is adding value that actually yeah. isn't adding the value that we're spending time on? It? Yeah, and then there's, there's there's an element of like, you put down a system, how many people are going to feel comfortable deleting a system you put down? And so having that type of thing, I think, encourages an environment where people feel like they can do their best. So another thing is the how do you do ide ideation of ideas? I don't know if you ever do this, but if um, you get everyone together and uh, there's a process you can do where people throw out ideas and then over the course of 30 minutes, then after that, they uh, they critique the ideas to get down to the three that they want to do. But that, that process of as a team, as someone comes in, seeing how people can like suggest stupid, seemingly stupid ideas, but then when you think about them, there's potentially something there that will solve the problem. That seems to get people in a mentality like really quickly from like zero to working as well as everyone else. When they when people can kind of, it's actually also the most fun. Like people are like, you just have a lot of fun doing that. I don't know if you do something like that, but I found that uh, usually when I bring people in, I like to do something like that on a Friday or like a Monday because uh, it, it, it completely changes the tone of everything. And people want to work, like people want to do their best work. And so it's really just, can you can you let them see that you are what you've said you are through the actions? So I think yeah. like, that's one thing I do as well. Yeah, I've, I've done that. It, um, I, it depends on, um, it depends on a lot of times the where my teams are in the world as well and how yeah. I ideation. And uh, I mean, I, it, it largely from an invention perspective, ideation, it there is a big Eastern versus Western approach, but I, you know, and so stereotypes may exist for a reason, but like, I, I find people in, in the U S that will have much more of an Eastern ideation approach. And so the difference is kind of like on the West, we're, we're usually very comfortable throwing out very divergent ideas. And then, mm. and then pretty quickly we come down to what you're saying. And as then we ideate into this little area. That if if I take that same approach to where like we bought a company in South Korea and I take that same approach there, that that almost freezes people a lot of times. Some That's interesting. Some people okay, but what works very well there, which doesn't work so well, uh, like uh, in the West to me, is you start here and instead of doing big jumps here, you do these circles that just get spiral inwards, hmm. and so. Um, that ideation, you still end up getting to places that are very different than where you may have started. It's just, if you go these very divergent, completely almost crazy ideas, that seems to be a very Western approach of things. Personally, that's how I tend to think. I have to go slower to go the other way. And I didn't realize it until I started working in some other cultures, how much that worked. And then now I've have had a couple of places in the US or I've been brought into some companies where we just work on ideation. And every once in a while, there's somebody in the room that's very quiet and you start to act, ask a little bit more questions and they're wanting to go these this inward spiral to the different, mm. yeah. Um, and so 
working be they can you can meld those two ways of thinking very well as long as you're aware that your brain might work different than his brain yeah does, it, does that have a, a name that concept of the spiral like the way of thinking I've it probably does in some yeah. scientific journal um i've included it in some keynotes before because you can visualize it literally almost like that big heartbeat that narrows in um and so i've drawn it myself and things uh but if it has an actual name i don't know well, opportunity to coin it, since uh, it seems like you've been experiencing it longer than me. I'll, I'll allow you the right away on that one. The, uh, what what are some books you'd recommend that we check out? I'm always happy to read new things. It goes in the newsletter. What what do you think we should check out? Yeah, so there's there's two books I think everybody uh, should read. One um, I did mention was Cheryl Backhall's book uh, Dare to Serve. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's just it's wonderful. It's wonderful for the stories alone within there um, of the people involved. Uh, but the other one is Profit First. It is especially for people that own their own businesses uh it should be required it should be required reading to be able to file taxes your first year is so important for saying um uh for for growing a business that's going to be healthy long term but i found i've walked through that book with people that literally run multi-billion dollar public companies and it changes how they think about running that large organization as well. Even though it really is kind of focused on that uh, woman or man that's running, you know, a, a half a million dollar to kind of five million dollar, you know, uh, business. But it it the approach and just the concept is very healthy. So I have noted that a lot of people in the U.S. they don't really get taught financial literacy. Would that would that also just be generally good? Would you be able to apply those principles to your personal life, or is it strictly for business? Um, I think this, yeah, problem. It's much more business wise. I think yeah. that thinking overlaps. Um, it's, it's really hard for me to know, find anything else. There's a lot I don't agree with Dave Ramsey on if you're healthy from a fiscal perspective, but, um, especially if you're in a relationship with somebody else going through financial peace university with your partner or spouse is so helpful for having common terminology to discuss where you agree with or d- disagree with. Um, and I, especially if you are if you are like your wife happen to own a business, doing profit first and financial peace university, which is only like six weeks, like doing them together just will change the conversations. Great. And then where can people go to stay up to date with what you're working on? You have you have quite a lot, and we couldn't get to everything today. But where where do we where would I go? Where would other people go to stay up to date? Just the cutting edge of of uh, Kurt. Well, yeah, two things. So on day to day, I work for eXp Realty and my team literally runs eXprealty.com. Um, and so we're listed one of the largest real estate companies in the world. And so you can actually see the results if you go search for a property or you set up a, like an alert for what's happening in your neighborhood. You actually will get emails sent from varieties of my teams. Um, and, but on the other side, I do a lot of writing myself on my own website at kurtuler.com, a lot on servant leadership, uh, both how to stay connected to what I'm doing and ask questions. I literally am writing topics now based on people going, yeah, but what about this? And I'll go write an article about that. Sweet. Uh, well, then I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Everyone who's listening, I want to thank you for being here and leaving the comments or write us a note telling us what you took from this conversation. Uh, I always think, how can I use this information, apply it somewhere? And that's the best way to make it stick. So please leave a comment. And Kurt, thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me.